0: Before I came up here, Isaac leaned over and said, are you going to call them, what are you going to call them this week? Last week, I talked about adultery and how spiritual adultery is a danger for all Christians. It's not a danger for non-Christians, it's a danger for Christians. Well, this week, we're looking at atheism because that's what James talks about here. And so I'm going to read and we're going to try to understand that, but kind of how to set that up, we can kind of understand some people philosophically being atheists. I don't, I can't really blame uh, survivors of the Holocaust to not think that uh, there is no God. In fact, that's what Elie Wiesel did um, in his book, The Night. Uh, He goes to Auschwitz. And toward the end of the war, but his entire family is uh, uh, slaughtered uh, by the Nazis. He survives, and and when he writes in the book, uh, he says something like, there was no God in Auschwitz. As he began to look at losing his faith in the midst of all that death. It began a seven-year nightmare uh, in 1938. In fact, this weekend is the 80th anniversary of Kristallnacht, which is the night of broken glass, which started the Holocaust. Because it was on that night that uh, 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 Germans had gone and uh, destroyed the homes, the temples, the synagogues, uh, the businesses... Of Jews in fact the next day which was yesterday the 80th anniversary that the first 30,000 Jewish people were sent to concentration camps where almost all of them died in fact six million over the next seven years will die to give you a, kind of a proportionality of the number That's more, that's a million and a half more than all the Jews that live in Israel today. And it's about a million more of the Jews that live in the United States today. Every man, woman, and child. You can kind of understand that in the midst of all of that, either that is going to move you closer to a relationship with God, because it's all you got left. Or think he's just abandoning you, or he doesn't just simply exist. I just don't know why it seems to be growing today, particularly among the young. The fastest growing self-designation in the United States is none. The, the title atheist has quadrupled in the last generation. James says there's a kind of atheism that's in the church. And he's a pastor, so he's concerned. And so I want to read that to you. James uh, chapter 4, of verse 13. This is the end of uh, a, a chapter or a discussion that he's been having. He says, "'Come now, you who say, "'Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town "'and spend a year there and trade and make a profit.'" May God help us to understand this, his most precious word, where there is life. Specifically, James is addressing or talking about Christian business people making decisions without acknowledging God in those plans. That's specifically what he's talking about. Verse 13, come now, you say, today or tomorrow you'll go to such and such a place, you'll spend a year there, uh, trade and make a profit. That's what he's specifically addressing in this church. A common activity among Christians, so common that uh, it's like breathing to them. To make a plan, to execute that plan, to make a choice and not include or consider what God might want. To not consider what the will of God is, what God's desires. James doesn't fault them for making a plan. When you become a Christian, you don't give up that part of your brain that thinks about tomorrow and all the tomorrows. James is not saying Christians, you just kind of live by the seat of your pants, you kind of go with the flow, uh, just be copacetic, laid back, be a phlegmatic human being. No, James is not talking about a changing your personality or the nature of man. Nor is he condemning making a profit. You, when you become a Christian, you don't have to start working for all the nonprofits in the world. He's not saying either of those things. He's not addressing planning or profiting. He's specifically talking about when you make a profit and when you make a plan, do you consider God? Is God part of the process? In fact, is he the center of the process? Can God overrule your plans? That's really what he's getting at. In your desires, in your hopes, in your dreams, in your future plans, can God say, nope, I got a different plan. And you say, yes, sir. You say, yes, even if it cost me, I would rather be poor in the center of God's plan than wealthy in my own plan. James is assuming you and I make plans. Verse 14, you you do not know what tomorrow is going to bring. What is your life? For you are a mist and appears for a little time and then vanishes. What he's addressing in uh, in 13 and 14 is this grave misunderstanding that Christians have about reality. That sometimes we are unaware that we don't acknowledge God in every facet of our lives. Every detail, every moment, every decision, every thought. Let me kind of illustrate how bad this can be that the fact that we're unaware that this is how we live our lives as practical atheists not philosophical atheists no i'm not accusing christians of professing christ but then i'm really in my private life i don't believe there is a god That's not what James is concerned with his people. What he's concerned is, is that the practical way we live our lives, not the philosophical way we live our lives, but the practical way as if God doesn't exist or at least is not interested in the details of our lives. That tendency is so prevalent, we can't even smell it on ourselves. It's like when I was uh, 17 and... The only place in my town you can make serious money as a 17-year-old with no skills is to work at the paper mill. Nobody wants to work at a paper mill because it stinks really, really bad. And it not only stinks bad to go there, you begin to take on the stench when you work there. We all knew that. We all knew that going out there was going to be hard on the nose. What we didn't realize is that after a while, we would stop smelling it. And we had no idea that we would take on the stench. To the point where the family that I was living with when I was 17 years old said, you cannot come into the house until everything you have on is taken off. And you, in the bathing suit that was out there, they were uh, somewhat modest, had to go swimming in with all the chlorine to kill all the stench. I did that all summer, every day, six days a week. I didn't even realize it. It wasn't even, it wasn't even in my radar that I, that, that I stunk that much. Well, sometimes the way in which we live, we don't even realize that we might live functionally or practically as if there is no God. Even though we profess and believe in our God. We sing the songs. We we come here and fill the pews. And yet, when we go out of here on Monday morning, when everything uh, begins to start up again in our lives, it's as if God is not there. And that's what James is concerned with for us. He's talking about a practical atheism that is making plans without thinking about God. It's the denial of God's existence by the way in which we go about our lives. It's living as if there is no God to whom we are accountable on a daily basis. And it is so common in the church. It is so common, James is telling us, that we we no longer smell the stench on us. Let me give you three tests to help you discern if you might be one who lives as a practical atheist. The first test is this. Do you worry? Do you chronically worry about tomorrow? About what somebody said? About what somebody did? What somebody might say? What somebody might do? Do you worry about these things? It is like acting like you don't have a heavenly father who is good. Worrying, chronically worrying, is like thinking that God is not good and that he doesn't know what you need and he doesn't care to give you what you need. And so in a way, we live as orphans do. And the definition of an orphan isn't just that someone without parents But as someone who has to live as though no one cares. And we have 1.6 million of them in the United States. Physically. But we probably have closer to 300 million. Spiritually. And some of them are in the church. Second test you might consider is your prayer life, my prayer life. Do we pray? And if we pray, what do we pray about? And sometimes things are so rough, so hard, so difficult, so afflicting in our lives, we don't even have words to utter, to, to bring before the Lord our concerns. And so we, what? I'll tell you what I do. I groan when I don't have words. But here's the great thing. God doesn't need your words because he already knows. A life without prayer is a sign of practical atheism. If I have nothing to say to God. It's as if God is not there in our hearts. Let me give you a third test. And this is really where James is. Do you make plans without God? This is what he's getting at in verse 15 when he says, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. James is not saying that if you become a Christian, you need to add this spiritual language to all your plans and then they'll be okay. Kind of like a Christianese. We've got our own vocabulary, a way of saying things like, you know, I'm planning tomorrow to do this. I'm going here. I'm going to change jobs But I know around Christians, in order for people to think that I'm not a practical atheist, I need to add some special Christian words. And I'll say, tomorrow I'm changing jobs. I'm going to get this real promotion. I'm going to make a whole lot more money, if the Lord wills. And then everybody says, oh, that's a spiritual person. He's taking into account that God might change or alter the plan. When in reality, it's almost like magical words it's almost as if we say it that way we can slap it onto any of our plans any of our decisions any of our choices and that'll make it okay it's almost like hey God here's what I'm going to do tomorrow if the Lord wills which is another way Lord please please agree with me that my plan is the best plan for me James is not saying that at all They're not magical words like when you the end of all your prayers, if you say in Jesus' name, is the same thing as saying if the Lord wills. It's not a way to justify what you want to do. James says, In your heart, in your decisions, do you consider God? It's more of an attitude of the heart than the words that you utter with your mouth. Now, James recognizes, because he's already said earlier, words matter, that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so when we do say things like, if the Lord wills, in the name of Christ, we really are hopefully reflecting the heart and our attitude that God may not be in this. God may not want me to do this. And so I have to be open to the possibility through confidential, trusted friends or his scripture or circumstances that I don't end up doing what I planned I would do. Do we ask before we do, what would God want me to do? What does God want? We act as if that's some mystery. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. He is not ambivalent about his kingdom and our participation in kingdom living. He's not confused or opaque in order for us to, to say, well, this over here can be outside the kingdom but this over here is in the kingdom when for a believer all is in the pursuit of the kingdom of God and his righteousness and therefore to live as a practical atheist in the church is foolish look at verse 14 you, do, you don't know what tomorrow is going to bring what's your life for it's a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. How can we think we're controlling tomorrow? How in the world do I get in my mind and in my heart that somehow I'm in control? At least in total control. We all recognize that I'm not fully in control, but we, we almost fool ourselves. I almost fool myself into thinking I'm in absolute control. Psalm 90 says... Lord, teach us to number our days. Why? That we may gain a heart of wisdom. Ecclesiastes 7 says, It is better to go into the house of mourning than the house of feasting. What? How can that be? How can it be that it is better to go to a funeral than it is to go to the cheesecake factory? Now, who thinks that? Well, evidently, Solomon does because he goes on and says this. The reason it's better to go to the house of the morning rather than the house of feasting is because this is the end of all mankind. And the wise will take it to heart and will act on it. Hear what he's saying. He's not saying anything different than humans have said from the dawn of time. You don't know how long you got. You need to live as though every day is your last day. What the Romans used to call carpe diem. Seize the day. But it's not just foolish to think you're in control. To think somehow that you're a sovereign. But it's also naive. And, and nobody wants to be called naive. But naivete is simply is someone who doesn't understand how the real world works. Notice it in verse 15. When James says, if the Lord wills, what he doesn't say is, if the Lord wills, I will do this or that. He says, if the Lord wills, comma, we will live. You and I, we often take for granted that we will wake up tomorrow. Obviously, you woke up this morning. But there's no guarantee for tomorrow. In fact, there's no guarantee you'll make it out of this room. There's no guarantee that you will get out of your car, go make it through lunch, or finish dinner today. In fact, somewhere today, there is a Christian who will wake up and he will thank God that he's alive because he doesn't take for granted that every breath he takes is from the very hand of God. He takes all things into account of his loving Father in heaven. We forget this because we're naive about how the world works. He says we're a mist. We're here for a while and then we're gone. But it's not just foolish and naive. It's it's arrogant. That's what uh, James says. When we make our plans and don't consider God, we're giving ourselves way too much credit. You and I are not in control of our lives. You can't add a single day to the span that God has ordained before the foundation of the world. The good news is no one can take a day away. There is nothing anyone can do to add or take away not only from his life or to anyone else's life your future is in God's hands and aren't you glad? Because if it was in our hands, the whole world will be sucked into a black hole. You and I are not in control. Not not totally. Not like we think. Proverbs 16, 19, one of my favorite Proverbs says, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. There's two parts to that. We plan our ways. It's a recognition that we make plans. But There's also a recognition, acknowledgement, a consideration that God directs our steps, that he's ultimately sovereign, that he is working out his story because his story is about him. And we are part of the story. This is the key when things don't go well for us. When we get sick or lose our jobs to recognize that God is directing us that he didn't catch God off guard when someone you dearly love died in fact when nations go to war and disease and famine and natural disasters and I only mean that in the sense of it's not something that we specifically cost but it's also true when you make bad choices when I make bad choices and you make bad choices and, and sometimes they're sin and sometimes they're just bad choices that we make. God is still sovereign. He's still in control. He's still gonna use them for his glory and our, for, for our good. Aren't you glad God didn't give you everything you asked for when you were 18? There's a bunch of 18-year-olds that wish he would. And there's a bunch of 80-year-olds who say, no, you don't. The truth is, we're not that good to run the world, much less our lives and the lives of others. The truth is, we're still not ready to run the world or our lives or the lives of our others, especially our children. Practical atheism is foolish, it's naive, it's arrogant. And James says in verse 16, it's also evil. Why would it be evil? Because pride in our self-reliance and in our own competence is evil. Our culture puts so much value in human competence. God puts none. Or he would have never sent a son. Because we could have figured it out ourselves. That's what the 16th century, 17th century enlightenment taught us. Is that man is not only the cause of his greatest problem, but he's also the solution of his, of his problem. And that's why practical atheism is so evil. J.B. Phillips, when he's quoting on this particular passage, he says, certain pride in yourself when you plan for your future with such confidence is arrogant. It's evil because when we make our plans without God, we can't see our need for God. And when we can't see our need for God, we can't and won't see Jesus. And so when James gives the one application in this passage, verse 17, he says, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. He's talking about your convictions. And and so what's the one thing that we know we ought to be doing from this text, but we are not doing? And by not doing, it is sin. This is what James is saying. So what's the context? A practical atheism, living as though God doesn't exist, making our decisions, making choices, making executing plans without considering what God wants. We know we're supposed to do that. And when we don't, even though we we can't even tell that we're doing it because we can't smell it on us, it is sin. It's evil. And so it's foolish and naive and it's arrogant and it's evil. But what can be done about it? Can anything make us not practical atheists? Can I give you three applications? Just three and then we'll be done. But I I think these applications, that if we consider them individually and corporately, then maybe we won't live this way without acknowledging God in everything about our lives, corporately and individually. First is to strive to live a deliberate life. Everyone makes plans. It's a good thing to make plans. But we need to make those plans with a radical conviction to avoid an accidental life where you're swept along by the tides of the times. Don't you see? There's nothing wrong with you making plans. But will you do it with a radical conviction Radical is used because if I just say ordinary, it won't be enough. But with the conviction that I'm not going to live an accidental life, I'm going to live a deliberate life for Christ. It's a radical commitment not to waste one's life that God has given you to live. The one life you have been given. No one has given two lives. No one has given more than one life to live. Will you not waste it? What does it mean to waste a life? A, a wasted life is a life that's not lived in the pursuit of the kingdom of God. With all of your mind and all of your soul and all your strength. I know that's hard to hear. It's hard to preach. But it is a wasted life if we're not living it for God, our creator. A wasted life forgets to whom we are accountable for the life he has created and redeemed. And redeemed. A wasted life is filled with regrets. There are a lot of people who will go to their deaths and will regret a lot of things. But if we truly believe we're going to pass from this life into the very presence and the very face of God, one of our biggest regrets ought to be how we lived our lives for Him. Or not for Him. Jim Elliott, who uh, shortly before he was executed, murdered by the very people he was trying to reach with the gospel in Ecuador. He wrote this in his journal. He's no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. If God asked for your life, it was never yours in the first place. And therefore you cannot keep it. And therefore you cannot lose it. One of my favorite books of all time is Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities because it's a great picture of the gospel of the innocent dying for the guilty. Very end of the story, one character, his name is Sidney Carton and he gives his life up for his friend and his daughter is coming to him while he's going to the gallows and begging him to not die for the guilty. And then he says at the very end, Charles Dickens has him say, it is a far, far better thing that I do than I have ever done because it is a far, far better rest that I go to than I have ever known. At the end of your life, can you look back and say that? When everybody else looks at you and says, man, you wasted your life. You could have been so much more. You could have made so much money. You could have done so much good for the world. You could, have, you could have been part of the great nonprofits of our nation. You could have ended hunger in Africa. But I live for the kingdom of God. And that's a far, far better thing I do than I ever could have done. And it's because I go to a better, better place than I have ever been. But that's going to take us to decide today. It's going to take you to deciding today that you will live 100% for the kingdom of God and His mission. And that means that you and I have to refuse to pursue security and comfort in this life. We cannot pursue the kingdom and comfort at the same time. You and I cannot pursue the kingdom of God and security at the same time. They don't go together. You and I must be willing to make any sacrifice that we are asked to make for the kingdom of God. That's what Paul says in Galatians 2.20. He's going to be the closest to James right here. When he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The one who delivered himself up for me and loves me. Please, we have to strive to live a deliberate life because the alternative is to live the accidental life. Secondly, it's going to take courage to live a deliberate life and because we have to strive to have that courage. We need to take a lesson. Today, we're celebrating Veterans Day. And on behalf of a grateful nation, thank you for your service. But please understand this. There's a lesson they teach us. Somehow we've got this impression that heroes are never afraid. That's why they run into buildings and into fights. The truth is they're scared to death. They're scared to death. But the difference between a hero and a mere mortal is that the mere mortal is afraid and does nothing. But a hero is afraid and puts courage in his heart and goes. It takes courage to trust God when everyone else won't trust God. It takes courage to make a sacrifice for God's kingdom when he asks you to do so. It takes courage not to pursue a promotion. If it means your involvement with God's mission and God's people are diminished. Don't miss that. It takes courage to pray that God will use your children on the mission field or right here at home rather than pursuing a comfortable life for themselves. It takes courage to tell your child we cannot regularly miss church because that is where the gospel is with God's people. Or that somehow youth group or children's ministry is the same thing as going to worship and it is not. It takes courage to cancel your annual vacation in order to give significantly to the need of a brother or sister in the church. You need courage. Because I need to courage too. And we need to put courage in one another's hearts. That's the definition of encouragement. Is to put courage into someone who lacks courage. The last piece of advice or Application is we need to try to strive to trust God with our lives. I promise you, if you decide to strive to live a deliberate life, if you decide to strive to live a courageous life, you're going to need to trust somebody. And there's no one greater to trust than God with your life. You will have to trust that God is good. You're going to have to trust that God wills your good. You will have to trust that this is not the end of your life, even if you face your death. You will have to trust that God loves your children if you hold their lives and careers open in your hands. You will have to trust that God will take care of you if you support the church, if you support his missionaries, if you support ministry leaders with your money, your time, and your prayers. And where will we get this courage to live this way? Where will we learn to trust God this way? You will have to look to the one who had to have courage to face his own death, to live his own deliberate life for the sake of the kingdom of God and to rescue us. You'll have to look to the one who had to trust his father, even though he was following God that cost him his own life. Jesus Christ on the cross became the abandoned child so that you could be the adopted son or daughter of God. Jesus Christ was asked to make the ultimate sacrifice in order to rescue us. And if God would not spare his own son to rescue you, how will he not freely give you what you need? And if God did this for you, how can we withhold from him anything? that he ask including considering God in all of our plans and so at every heart in this room grows faint every time we get afraid we need to look at Jesus and see what he's done for us and then move out in courage and trust I want you to understand that God will give you all the grace that is needed to fulfill what he requires. But he will not often give that grace until we move. We want all the grace up front so that we know that when we move out, everything will work out. That's what... Israel faced as they got to the Red Sea and the Egyptian army is behind them and they're paralyzed in their fear and God says, tell them to go and then I'll part the Red Sea and save my people. That's the way he works because God is more concerned about our trust in him than our success on this planet by human standards. I want to give you and a, a real life example. We only have a few minutes, but I want him to come in, and and share with you a little bit of why he does what he does. He's my friend, and when I first met him, he was not doing this for money. He wasn't doing this for a living. He was doing this as a volunteer, as a deliberate life, and that was to to go and live among people that the rest of us don't often do unless they're our relatives, and that is with high school students. He and his wife are heavily involved in our youth ministry, but they're also involved in high school students in our county at different high schools. And so his name is Jason Erickson, and he's going to make his way up here while I keep stalling for him to get this far. (laughs) And he's just going to briefly tell you a little bit of why he does what he does.
1: So Bruce is correct. My name is Jason Erickson. My wife, Megan is your assistant high school youth director. She works with John Cavalero. I'm the area director for Young Life here in Anne Arundel County. And Bruce is absolutely correct again when he says that most of my involvement with Young Life was spent on a volunteer basis. I spent many, many more years in corporate America and then screaming home up Route 50 from Washington, D.C., throwing my tie off, throwing my briefcase in the back seat, and pulling into a local high school, local middle school, to spend time with kids. And when people would ask me why I did what I did, I answered them in a couple ways. I would say to them, well, I do what I do so I can do what I love. And uh, and that worked for a while. Um, and then God kind of decided, you know what, let's just do what you love. And so he yanked me out of that, and... He made me the Young Life Area Director. It's a new designation. I've only been doing this for about the past five or six months. And so when people ask me now why I'm doing what I'm doing, why my wife and I do what we do, the answer is I can't find a better way to live. Mm. I can't find a better way to live. I really can't. I just, uh, I've looked around. And there's just not. Mm. There's just not. I've never heard one of my associates who's farther down the road than I am when they're getting towards the end. I've never heard a single one of them ever say, I regret it. It wasn't enough. It didn't meet the expectations. My life wasn't full. I've never heard it. I just haven't. It just doesn't happen. So, why do I do this? I do this because when I get to the end, I don't want to have regrets. I find that it's the best way to live life going after Christ in the lives of kids and our local communities. Now, that's my first story. My second story is this I had a buddy. He works with me. His name's Josh. And Josh is a volunteer, just like I was for a lot of years. And Josh works with high school students down at South River. The first game of the season this year, Josh went up to the high school. We went up to that high school because in young life, we position ourselves in such a way that we go to where kids are, wherever they are. We call it contact work. It's not necessarily unique to us, but it's how we've purposed ourselves to live and to experience Christ and to see him at work in the lives of kids. So Josh is up at the high school, and it is pouring down rain when he walks up. There's barely one in the stands, you've got your linesmen, you've got your refs, and the guys in the field. But there's no kids there. It's just raining too hard. And within the first three to five minutes, they just flat out canceled a the game. They actually canceled every single game in the county. And so he's standing there, all by himself. There's no kids. And he starts walking back to Midway, and he's asking himself, you know, man, what did he even come up here for? This is crazy. And then from across the field, at the field house, There's a guy, and his name is Rich Abenor. And Rich Abenor is part of our local um, committee. And he says, hey, Josh, Josh, it's pouring down rain. Come on, get over here, get over here. So Josh goes running around to the other side of the field. And he goes into the field house, and standing there before him are a hundred, almost a hundred Football players. And he's just staring at him. Out of that crowd, there comes an enormous young man. His name is Karan. He is the heavyweight champion, state wrestler here in Maryland. He is the varsity captain of the football team. And Josh has got to know him because Josh has gone to that school over and over and over again. And Karan comes up and he puts his arm around Josh and he says, This is Josh. He's my young life leader. Line up. You're all going to meet him right now. Yeah, not too bad, huh? Not too bad at all. And one by one, these kids come up and they meet Josh. And then Josh comes back. <laughs> After that's all over, and he's got a place at the table with these guys now. And he comes back to me, and he comes back to the other Young Life leaders, and he says, guess what? And we get to celebrate together. Living life to the fullest. John 10.10. 10. I came that they may have life and life to the fullest. Why do I live deliberate life? Because I want to live life full. Thank you guys so much.
0: One of the reasons I marvel at Jason and Megan and and John Cavallaro and the many other people who are involved in student ministry is I look at that and I think I could come up with a thousand reasons not to do something like that not to be around students and and whatnot but then I hear what God does and I think gosh they're not really sacrificing that much because of what God does do we ever think about that that what I do has any kingdom value to it. I love that Jason talked about being in the corporate world and because that's a nice transition to next week when we talk about your work matters to God because it does. Not everybody is called to do what Jason and uh, Megan and John and, and Isaac and a number of other people in our church do, but we are all called to work, and our work does matter. So let's take a moment and pray. Father, thank you again for bringing us to this point where we have to wrestle again with our hearts. But we don't do that in a sorrow or grief or loss, but in joy because you have already worked out the plan. We're going to the table. We're going home. We have so much of life that will be lived between now and then for many of us. Help us to live deliberately where we recognize and consider you and your kingdom and your righteousness and what we do and how we do it and why we do it and to whom we do it with, with you. And help us put courage into each other's hearts to live this way. And may we in the midst, particularly when it looks like it's not going to turn out the way that we envisioned, that we trust you for the results. We trust you for what is good and what is lovely, what is beautiful, what is true. We pray, Heavenly Father, that as we conclude and sing together, that this is only the beginning of a discussion and not an end in our homes, and among our friends, around lunch tables, and into the future. In Jesus' name, amen.